On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with me, Scott Radley, sitting in for Scott today, we're going to be talking about the new governor general, what she brings to the role, what she doesn't bring to the role, and that second part in a positive way, what she doesn't bring to the role. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Remember the last one. We're going to be talking about the CFL and XFL discussions that seem to have died to the relief of some people. Transportation, we are told is the key to building the economic development of a city. At least that's the thesis. We're going to be talking to somebody about that idea, a thesis in a piece that was written by in a Bloomberg story. Is that true? And are we really chasing young people away from the city of Hamilton, mainly because they can't afford to live here? We're going to talk about it all. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Scott Thompson Show here on 900 CHML. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. On the 81st birthday of Ringo Starr. Yep, eight. Can you believe that? The 81st birthday. Back in the day when the Beatles said, you know, when I'm 64, and that was going to be really old. 81 years old. Happy birthday to Ringo Starr. First up today, though, you heard yesterday that Mary Simon was named the new Governor General of Canada. And this is a, it's an hist- a historic announcement. It is um, the first Indigenous person, first Indigenous woman. Um, but also just the fact that, you know, earlier this week we were talking, or late last week, I can't remember, but we were talking about where is our Governor General? It's been a long time since January, since we have had one. We we kind of need one, especially if we do have an election coming up, because the governor general plays a rather important role in the electoral process. We're going to get to all that. But first, who is Mary Simon? We're going to talk about that. But first, take a listen to this report from David Aiken from Global News. Answer some of your questions. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's pick for the country's 30th Governor General won near-unanimous approval, notably from Indigenous leaders, including Natan Obed, president of the organization that speaks for the country's 65,000 Inuit. I couldn't be happier with the selection. Also, just as an Inuk, to hear somebody speaking in Inuktitut and to be given this particular role, um, which is such a meaningful role in this particular parliamentary democracy. Mary Simon, who will turn 74 next month, has been a journalist, a diplomat, and an educator. Let me begin by conveying in the strongest possible terms that I am honoured, humbled, and ready to be Canada's first Indigenous Governor-General. Born in Kujuak in northern Quebec, she attended a federal government day school where English-only instruction was the order of the day. My bilingualism is Inuktitut and English. However, based on my experience growing up in Quebec, I was denied the chance to learn French during my time in the federal government day schools. But it is her indigeneity, the fact that she is an Inuk woman, that makes her appointment historic. There are very important responsibilities associated with my role that will help the working relationship of Canadians and Indigenous people. There is no word yet on when her installation or swearing in might take place. The PMO would only say it will happen soon. David Aiken, Global News, Ottawa. So that's Mary Simon. What will this mean for Canada? What does this mean for the position of Governor General? What does this mean for a lot of different things? I want to bring in Daniel Bailon, James McGill, Professor of Political Science and Director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada at McGill University. Daniel, thanks for doing this again today. 
Thanks for the invitation. We were just last week, I think it was, or early this week. I don't know when we when we talked to you, saying, "Where is the Governor General? Why is it taking so long?" You and I, you and I, apparently triggered this, Daniel. We just had to talk about it, and lo and behold, it happens. Exactly, exactly. We did it. Congratulations. <laughs> why do you? Why do you think it did take so long? Now that we know, was was. Is there was there? Do you believe a real fear in the government that they had to vet this within an inch of its life to make sure they didn't have another failure? Yes, I think that uh, considering um, you know what happened um, with the previous uh, governor uh, general with Julie Payette, uh, who I wasn't vetted properly, and and this ended up in a train wreck. So they want to avoid that. Um, certainly, it took a lot of time, more than five months. Uh, there was a subcommittee who worked on the shortlist, and it was sent to the, the prime minister in, uh, in mid-June. And uh, now we, we finally know that uh, Mary Simon is the next governor general. She will be installed, I think, next month. So she's not the governor general yet, but uh, she's, uh, she will uh, soon um, uh, be one. And I think uh, it, it uh, was long overdue for the, the government to announce that, especially because we are talking about the possibility of... Uh, yes of uh, late summer, early fall uh, elections. One of the things I think that is going to play to Mary Simon's strength, because everything we've heard and read about her, she's a very, very bright woman. Uh, she's going to be able to look at what happened with Julie Payette and be able to avoid those pitfalls, which will I think everybody will be happy about. But what would an... Uh, Assuming that she can avoid those, and I would assume I'm expecting that she will. What would an excellent governor general look like? It, I mean, uh, define how we would perceive someone who would be a great governor general. Yeah, someone who's thoughtful, someone who uh, who is able to remain politically neutral and and have no, not people have no doubt about their allegiance that they are. The allegiance is to the crown <laughs> to, uh, and not uh, to, to a particular political party, obviously. So being politically neutral is uh, important, nonpartisan, uh, being thoughtful, especially when uh, you have to actually um, play a significant constitutional role when the prime minister comes to see you about dissolution or prorogation and so forth. Uh, so it's important. Also, someone who has good uh, is able to uh, really interact with uh, Canadians from all backgrounds, from all around the country, and able to project a, a, a positive image. Uh, again, you have to be uh, um, ser serious and someone uh, who can be trusted, but also uh, someone who, um, who has good interpersonal uh, skills, communication skills, uh, to uh, really uh, project uh, the um, the image of the, the the crown and 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 you know most of the work is ceremonial. Uh, so as a former ambassador, she certainly knows about protocol and ceremonies. Uh, she was also the chancellor at Trent University, which is also a ceremonial role for the most part. So I think that uh, she has experience doing this, and I think that's an asset. You've mentioned that she is the representative of the Queen. Everybody knows that. She has also said yesterday when she was introduced that she, that she represents Indigenous people, obviously as an Indigenous woman, as the first person, uh, first Indigenous person in that position. Could that potentially put her in an awkward spot if a government were to bring forward legislation or pass legislation that is unpopular with indigenous people, and she is now seen as one of their main representatives. Is is that a tough spot for her? It, it potentially, absolutely. I, I think this is um, 
this is always when your governor general, and especially in her case, uh, she will have to draw a fine line, you know, between her formal constitutional and ceremonial role and pressures from, uh, it could be from indigenous communities or other people, uh, uh, to have uh, or take a stance uh, in their favor. Um, and, and as a governor general, she has, again, to, to maintain this, you know, to follow protocol and to maintain this, this neutrality. But it's not because she's politically neutral that is nonpartisan that she cannot, in her speeches, in her communications, convey certain messages about reconciliation. Um, but, but it's true that taking, you know, specific policy positions is not something we expect the governor general mm. to do. And I think she has enough experience, especially as a former ambassador, uh, to um, you know to navigate this, but it is a challenge. That's for sure. I would say that even though I obviously what you're saying is accurate, I do believe that she lands in a position of real power, though, especially considering the time we're in to have an indigenous person take this role. I think she has a a stage that is probably a lot higher than some previous governors general. Yes, and I think that she can use that. Uh, again, a lot of this is symbolic in nature, but it has a a broad, a broad meaning, and and so she can make a difference. But we should not exaggerate <laughs> at the importance of this nomination. Uh, as she mentioned, uh, uh, Mary Simon mentioned yesterday during her speech. In her speech, you know, the road to reconciliation is is a long one, and there are so many challenges on the ground, uh, so many issues to address, and 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 we have to deal with our past. We have to deal with concrete. Uh, policy challenges on the ground regarding access to clean water and education and and poverty and so forth. So and also self government, <laughs> and and these are the things that she can really um, mm. she she cannot solve these problems on her own. But but she can maybe um, help uh, frame the issues, uh, frame reconciliation in a in a positive, constructive way. She might be able to yeah to contribute to the the. The, the public discourse in Canada in a positive way, and also displaying her knowledge of Inuktitut, her mother tongue, I think could raise the profile of Indigenous languages in Canada outside of Indigenous communities, and that's something that's long overdue. One of her jobs over the years, one of the things she's done a lot in her life is to shape public policy. And to go back to your point, clearly she's not a politician. She's not in a position to shape public policy by drawing bills or laws. But is she in a, even in her position, is she in a spot where she can shape policy by quietly, subtly pressuring things? She could behind the scene, but she has to be careful. Uh, again, there's protocol here, and uh, she, uh, she will have to be, uh, I think, uh, very, very subtle about the way she does it. Um, and, and, you know, so, so behind the scene, perhaps, and she could make broad statements uh, that, that will have some uh, policy meaning, right? But she cannot herself change policy. Mm, right, yes, but, but she, you know, people are going to listen. Yes, especially, and we see how the first few months and the go, because, uh, you know, the proof is in the pudding, as always. We saw Julie Payette when she was nominated, many people... Uh, you know, we're very optimistic and, and cheerful about it, and it turned out to uh, <laughs> it turned out to be a train wreck. Uh, yeah. I, I'm I'm hopeful. Uh, Mary Simon, of course, she was I think vetted the 
properly this time compared to her predecessor. And also, uh, she has very strong credentials in terms of government experience. And I think that this is a very good sign. Uh, and I think that she could emerge as a, as a really central figure in reconciliation. Uh, but she will have to, uh, to play her cards uh, uh, well. And, you know, this is a challenging position. People think it's just about, you know, cutting ribbons and it's just ceremonies. But there is more uh, to it than that. There's the constitutional side, of course, but there's also the tone. And, and yes, you can help uh, shape conversations that we have in Canada about different things, including policy issues and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. So she can play a positive role there, even if her actual power in terms of decision making is uh, almost non-existent. There is some irony in this election, though, that there, uh, within about five seconds of her being announced, every TV network had pulled out the old footage of she and Pierre Trudeau butting heads in a committee back in 1971, 72, something like that. Um, the current prime minister had to know about that background between her and his father and had to know that footage would come out. Yeah, this is a footage, I think, from, I think, more recent. I think it's from the early 80s. But, oh, is it? Okay. Uh, yes, because René Lévesque is at the table, and uh, so uh, he was premier of Quebec at the time. So I think it was a bit after 1982. But it's a fascinating footage, and I'm sure, yes, that, uh, uh, the, that, that Justin Trudeau uh, knows about it. Uh, uh, the interaction that we see on this video is not very positive. Uh, I think uh, Pierre Trudeau basically lectured her, <laughs> and she was not amused. <laughs> so it's an interesting, um, you know, yes. an interesting footage. Uh, and yes, probably the prime minister was aware of it, but I don't think that this played a role in the, the nomination. I think that uh, uh, it's someone who was considered in the past, uh, supposedly under Stephen Harper. Um, and so I think that uh, this is uh, someone who uh, uh, was certainly will have been on the, the, the short list of many different prime ministers. Um, and, and again, if she was considered as a potential uh, uh, choice under Stephen Harper, it shows that she really is above uh, uh, the partisan fray. I have 10 seconds. Uh, I, I wish I could give you longer. The fact that she doesn't speak French, how is that playing in Quebec? Well, there are quite swift negative reactions on social media but the, the, from francophones. But you have other francophones who are saying, well, she's committed to learn French. And also, uh, the premier of Quebec has not reacted to this at all. And the government in Quebec um, has, has been pretty, uh, you know, just formal congratulating her. Uh, she received the order of Quebec. As, and, and even if you... So I think that there are some... There is a debate in Quebec about the fact that she doesn't speak French. Yes, that's... Uh, uh, but she pledged to, to improve her French. So again, it's something that... The proof is in the pudding, so we'll see what happens within the, the next few months. Daniel Bailon um, from McGill University. Love having you back again. Thanks for doing this. You're most welcome. Have a wonderful afternoon. There was a statement put out by the CFL this morning said this, our talks with the XFL exploring the potential for collaboration and innovation have been, have been positive and constructive. While we remain open to finding new ways to work together in the future, we and our XFL counterparts have jointly decided to not pursue any formal arrangements at this time. Good news? Bad news? What do we take from this? Let me bring in Neil Lumsden, Grey Cup winner as a player, Grey Cup winner as a manager, Vanier Cup winner, amazing race contestant. He's done everything. But we're going to go mostly to the football stuff right now. Neil, how are you today? I'm great, Scott. How are you? I am well, and I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, from my perspective, this seems to be good news because I just worried the XFL would 
suck the soul out of the CFL if they were to merge. But there's also the financial part of this that the XFL might have helped. When you look at this, is is this a good news story today or is this a bad news story? I think it's a great news story for a couple of reasons. And I said when they first started talking, uh, as a guy who's been around and watched and been been a fan of stars and played and then worked in the league, thought that we're the ones that have the history. We're the ones that have the great reputation. We have all the credentials. Yeah, there's been some tough times, but who, what league hasn't other than maybe the NFL for a while there. So I, I, but I, I never thought it was a bad thing for them to be talking. I didn't, I think everyone made an assumption that the group on the XFL side were trying to rush to the altar. And I, I, I didn't feel like Randy would do that to his league and to our league, but I thought that, you know, when you sit back and listen, you learn. And if there's opportunity down the road that we don't lose our, what's really important to this league and, and fans that have come up and talked to me about it, about three down ball on the size of our field and all those sorts of things, then it's okay to keep talking because maybe, just maybe, there's something down the road that can benefit all the member clubs, the ownership, financially and from a credibility perspective. But again, you don't rush to the altar on something like this, and I'm glad that they haven't. I We don't know this yet. We don't know why the talks fell apart. But to your point, I have to believe that what may have gotten away in this is uh, I'm sure Randy Ambrosi, the commissioner of the league has heard from thousands of people saying, don't sell out our three down game. Don't turn us into a four down version of football just to connect with the XFL. And I, you know, I look at this, I think, I, I wonder if that was the, the, the sticking point. The XFL is not interested in taking three down football to the States and we're not interested in having another four down league. So we can't find common ground. Well, there is some history of three down football in the U S with, way back when in the expansion under Larry Smith's direction. And, and in one market, it did extremely well, and that was Baltimore, and everywhere else it struggled. And I don't think it's so much that people don't like three-down football, but like us, the people in the U.S. that have, you know, live and die football, football to them is simply four-down football. It's a smaller field. It's 11 guys. Why should they change because of us? And, I, you know, we have the same feelings as they do, and rightfully so, being proud of what we are and who we are and how we play the game, because it is a different game. So um, I, I think those are all good things. Now, is there something down the road where, uh, you know, the like minds come together and say, well, maybe we do an exhibition series. Maybe we do a little bit of this and that to introduce it properly. Um, yeah, it makes perfect sense. But again, you know, I didn't hear about anybody writing big checks to the owners in the CFL whether they be private, whether they be community. I didn't hear of any of that. And I also don't lose sight that Randy Ambrose is a guy who played in this league, was a very good player, cares a lot about it, and I don't think he'd sell this league out. I never thought that. Um, but it certainly isn't a bad thing to have the fans remind him of where they stand. Never is. Well, and, and you know, the, the statement, as I read, our talks with the XFL, um, blah, 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 while we remain open to finding new ways to work together in the future, the door is not closed. And uh, again, you listen to this and you think both leagues have some issues right now. The XFL doesn't have a league. Right. The CFL is short on money. Either side gets desperate enough. Maybe they get back together and try and work something out. Maybe. But again, the, the worst deals are done out of desperation and typically... You know, someone gets taken advantage of in, in desperate situations. Yeah. No, I know the owners have, you know, have, have put a lot on the line and they've lost a lot of dough. I don't believe they're desperate. 
Would it be, th- this question has been raised by a lot of people, depending on how dire things are financially for the CFL, and it's a private org, most of them are private, so we don't really know, but right. would it be better for the league to just fold or to change and become a four down American style game? There have been people who said, I'd rather just see the thing shut its doors than go to that. Yeah, I don't, to me, that's, those are people that are sitting around on the, sort of the what-if scenarios where, you know, we're going to start building a bomb shelter because we think things are that bad in the world. I don't. <laughs> that to me is where those people are coming from. I'm an optimist, and I believe things uh, not necessarily happen for a reason. But good people, good owners, good management come out of tough situations, and they become better. I think that's going to be the situation in CFL. If, if the CFL, and now it's going to be a shortened season, but if they bounce back this year, now that they can get back on the field, if there's great excitement and the fans show up and things go real, does that, in your mind, even further end this discussion because there's no reason then to necessarily connect with the XFL because any any of those tie, those COVID days of desperation or whatever we want to call them, they would be in the rearview mirror? Depends what the definition of connect is. All comes down to that. Define what we're going to look at and what we may look at as a connection or business relationship, and then go from there. Hmm. That's the way I look at it. I I think you have to. That's where we have to start. It's a business. That's where you have to look at it. Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, look, we don't know yet exactly with fans. We don't know what kind of money they may make or may still lose this year, which is really tricky for the owners to be trying to put a product on the field with, in many cases, no real financial plan. And, you know, I suppose that they could all, or many of them can weather it for a while still, but uh, boy, you just, you just hope that this year is the turning point back to normal or back to even better. And, and that the, that the time away has not turned people's attentions to other things. and They've not found other hobbies. That, that to me is the one fear. Are we going to see everybody flow back or have they found something else? No question. That's an interesting point. I, I believe that, the fans will have that have spoken up and others will show up. Um, and that's, that's how I see it. And I think that the players are ready to go. I know the management and the ownerships is ready to go. Let's, as the expression goes in Canada, let's drop the puck and let's go. Well, if they drop the puck, somebody's going to be very confused at a CFL stadium, <laughs> but I get your point. Uh, and I also have to let Neil run because he, you can hear the wind blowing. Neil is moving towards the first tee to play around a golf. And I don't know that they allow you to play with a cell phone strapped to your ear. So no, uh, enjoy your round. It's a lovely day at Beverly. I will tell you that as it always is. Neil Lumsden, appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Hey, my pleasure, Scott. Anytime. It is. Uh, it, it was certainly a, a bit of a surprise announcement today, I think, to a lot of people because there was this perception, this belief that once you start these talks, once you head down that path, this thing is not ending until there is some kind of deal. A lot of people felt that. And I think there's reason to have thought that because this has been a really dark time with COVID for the CFL losing an entire year, looking for help from the federal government, which didn't come, not knowing, as I say, what the fan situation and the finances are going to be for this year. And so I think a lot of people just expected they're going to, they're going to flinch. They're going to feel like they have to do something to connect. And I'm with Neil. I mean, if, if, if a little more money in your pocket or even a lot of money in your pocket requires you as the Canadian Football League to sell your soul and give up what makes you unique, look, it's not my money, so I can say this. It's not my checkbook that's being drained, but boy, I think a lot of people would say, hang in, hold on, don't change, 
although uh, others would say, no, come on. Why, why do we still want it's a, it's a, it's a discussion that goes on and on, but for now, no XFL. So if nothing else, it means the rock will not be flipping the coin at midfield for a tie cat game this season. You're listening to the Scott Thompson show podcast on 900 CHML. I was reading a piece on um, Bloomberg from Bloomberg the other day, and it's a really fascinating piece. And essentially the thesis that is being presented is that transportation is the key to growing a city's economy. Here's the headline on it. It's time for economic developers to focus on transportation regions with an efficient transportation network stand a better chance of boosting productivity through shorter commutes. Now, we live in a city that has had an ongoing endless debate about LRT. And I'm guessing that many of the people slash most of the people, maybe all of the people who support LRT probably agree with this. Because much of, not all, but much of the case that has been made for the LRT has been built around the economic spinoff that will come. People have pointed to Waterloo and Kitchener and the LRT that runs from those from that city to that city, from Waterloo to Kitchener. And they say, yeah, there's something like the number they keep citing is $2 billion in building that has been born along the line. And people here in Hamilton say, see, that will happen here as well. Well, we don't know that yet. We don't know what the number would be. But again, they point to this and say, build transportation. And whether it's immediate growth from the path that the transportation line is on, like the LRT, or whether it's just because of other fringe elements, we will improve our economy. I want to bring in Professor Maddie Simiateki, who's a professor of geography and planning and the interim director of the School of Cities at the University of Toronto. He joins us now. Professor, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So uh, I, I'm, I'm fearful to ask this first question because I feel like it might take up the entire time we have. <laughs> I'm going to ask it anyway, though. Why would transportation be key to building the economy of a city? Well, first things first, you have to be careful if you ask an open-ended question to a professor. I know. Because it could, it, I know. It could be a very long answer. I know. And your <laughs> lectures are usually probably three hours long, and we only have a few minutes. So already I'm in trouble. But in the Reader's Digest version, why would that be? Well, transportation plays a really critical role in the development of regions. Uh, it's really about access. It's being it's it's enabling people to reach more locations, more parts of the city, more opportunities for employment, for recreation, for socializing, uh, for appointments in a shorter period of time. And that's that that creates efficiency. Uh, and out of that efficiency become comes productivity. And so the sites that are more accessible become more valuable. And that, that's been the driving logic behind what we think of as transit-oriented development, like what you were describing in Waterloo. That as LRT came in, uh, it created more accessible parts of the city, uh, and developers looked to build uh, larger buildings. Uh, the, the areas could support greater density uh, because now there was public transit, so more people could uh, move through those areas. Uh, and as a result, development uh, started to take place. Now, what's important is that transit and transportation is only one piece of the puzzle of a thriving uh, city. Uh, there are many different parts around uh, education, around livability, around safety, around clean uh, and clean environments. All of those factors uh, contribute to a, a, a thriving uh, economy and a thriving city. 
is the is the the idea behind the economic growth resulting from transportation predicated on the entire city being interconnected so that everyone can easily get everywhere or can it work if there is one stretch only and the reason i ask obviously is our lrt here one of the concerns one of the criticisms by some people is we're putting a ton of money or at least the federal government provincial government are mm-hmm. into one route but the rest of the city doesn't have nearly the same level of interconnectivity through the transit system. This has been the ongoing challenge with with transit planning is when you're as far behind as we are in this region uh, and you do planning by project rather than uh, planning by uh, program, uh, you really do start to see a focus on given corridors uh, and possibly at the expense of of the entire region. That you have to think of uh, transit and transportation planning as a network and enabling the most number of people to reach destinations quickly uh, and safely. And so, in some instances, that might be hot, very high order transit like an LRT line along certain routes. But in other cases, it's the network effect of having very good quality frequent bus service or dedicated bus lanes that uh, can be much cheaper uh, and can be operated much more uh, frequently and provide service to more people. One of the challenges we've had in this region uh, is that many parts, there are parts of the region that are well connected with public transit, whether it's the GO network or the Toronto Mm -hmm. subway or the streetcars or the LRTs, but there's been a lot of communities that have been completely disconnected uh, with very poor transit. And those communities are often low-income communities, racialized communities, newcomer communities. Uh, And in those those instances, people have very poor access to the jobs and the other uh, necessities uh, uh, of life. Life that, that come from living in a thriving city like ours. So I think thinking about transit and this investment, especially in Hamilton as part of a network is really going to be critical to understanding the merits of the LRT. And even if the LRT goes forward, how to plan around it so that uh, the most number of people get benefit from the project. And you talk about the fact that we're behind, not just we in Hamilton. I mean, lots and lots of places are behind and trying to catch up. And then you look at many of the world's great transit systems, wherever those would be in those cities, to a large degree, many of them were built a long time ago, or at least had the foundations when it was way more affordable. Today, I mean, we've seen it here. The projects cost billions of dollars that we don't really have. It becomes a conundrum about what you do with that money and how you catch up. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, many of the cities that that first come to mind uh, when we think of transit metropolises, the great transit metropolises of the world started before us. Uh, so whether it's London, which was first with subways or New York or Paris, those cities were very early. But other cities actually have been going uh, much more recently and much quicker, like a city like Shanghai has built like 11 lines in the time that we negotiated, discussed, relitigated, just, just like the Shepherd subway line. Uh, the amount, the speed that other cities, and that's just one example in China, but there's other cities globally, the speed of what's being built elsewhere uh, and the continuousness of that investment has been much faster. And when you look at some of these global rankings of livable cities, Canadian cities tend to rank very highly. Uh, and, and the one area where we lose marks tends to be on our infrastructure and in particular on our transportation infrastructure. We just haven't kept pace in that area. These projects are very expensive. We tend to uh, go back and forth. We tend to negotiate, relitigate the projects over and over again. And it becomes challenging to actually get 
uh, things built. And so we're at a moment now where I think coming out of the pandemic, people are ready and recognize the importance of big investments to address issues of climate change, to address issues of exclusion and, and systemic racism in our cities. And so now you're starting to see um, uh, transportation and transit investment really coming back onto the urban agenda. The, the Shanghai example is interesting because, I mean, clearly the folks who run things in China can do things we can't do here and wouldn't want, we don't want to operate the way they necessarily do there with some of the way things happen. Boston is another example. I mean, they had the big dig that took forever to try and put their system into place. So, I mean, there, there's, there's both examples of getting into these massive projects and how quick they can happen. Yeah. I mean, mega, mega projects themselves, uh, there's often a paradox of mega projects that, uh, the costs are underestimated and the benefits are overestimated. Uh, so that means, you know, costs are, are, are typically going to rise above what has been uh, announced. And then ridership, especially on transit, tends to be below uh, what was what was first forecast. Uh, this is often called the mega project paradox because you, you end up spending more and getting less over time. I think with the key now is for careful planning to make sure that we're picking the right project and using evidence uh, to pick the right projects and thinking just like you described earlier about a network, not just picking individual projects uh, as they come along, but thinking about how everything fits together. It's like pieces to a puzzle that have to fit together if you're going to see the entire picture. Otherwise, you get a disjointed system uh, with some real winners and losers uh, that stand out. Reading this piece in, in, on Bloomberg, and it's a really interesting piece, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, it's a really, really interesting piece. And one of the theories that's put forward there is that better transit means better commute times, which, which benefits workers because it enhances their quality of life and their productivity. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, the question, though, that comes out of what we've been through with the pandemic is many people have now been working from home. Many people may remain working at home. They may have discovered that that is now doable and why commute. Does that change the importance of transit as far as doing all the things that it says it will do? I was quite struck reading this piece in Bloomberg how little they talked about uh, the shift to work from home and, and some of the implications of the pandemic. Uh, I'm of the view that, uh, you know, there are uh, a certain share of the population that can work from home, but many people, even through the pandemic, have been out uh, going to jobs in frontline services and in, in other work that can't be done from home right through the pandemic. And in many cases, even when transit was uh, ridership in the region was down by up to 90%, there were still crowded bus routes in the inner suburbs. Again, largely low-income populations, uh, racialized communities, newcomers who were doing many of the jobs that were keeping our cities thriving uh, and at least able to function through the pandemic. I think coming out of the pandemic, I think you know we've seen that transit and livability is going to be even more vital, especially as we try to uh, get a handle on climate change and meeting our uh, emissions uh, reduction targets. I mean, climate change is now really looming. It's no longer theoretical. It's here whether it's the heat waves or forest fires, it's, 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 it's present, it's, it's now. And so I think public transit is going to be certainly part of these investments. And people, I think, are going to ultimately uh, go back to work uh, outside the home uh, and, 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 and into offices in various forms. And we still will need transit. 
Now, just one other point is the other alternative is a very car-based type of future where people askew transit. They say, I'm going to just go uh, and drive because uh, because transit hasn't been a viable option. Uh, and if I'm only going into work three days a week, maybe I'll just spend a little bit more on parking for those three days uh, and it'll be a financial wash. I think that's a real risk for our cities, uh, both in terms of a congestion nightmare and in terms of meeting our climate obligations. Yeah. And you know what? The convenience side of that, and that's such an, you know, it goes back to what we discussed to start this whole thing, which was the entire, do you have to have the entire city connected? And, you know, in in Hamilton, uh, for example, and again, most listeners are going to be from around here. There are parts of the city in the downtown where there's urban density and where the LRT is probably going to go and that's fine, but you go out into the very rural suburbs into Flamborough and Waterdown, and if you want to get to the LRT, you may have to clear your schedule for the entire day to get down there just to get to that train. It makes no sense for a lot of these people to say, I'm not going to have a car. It, there just is not an option for that not to be part of their life. And I, I think this is where we have to think about transportation, not just transit. We have to think of the full range of options that that, that people can have uh, so that they can they can move around the city uh, and avoid the single occupant vehicle. I mean, is, are there ways of uh, encouraging carpooling? Um, I know we, we talk a lot about uh, Uber and Lyft as, as ride sharing, but there, the car, uh, carpooling existed long before Uber uh, and Lyft. And I think we could be encouraging uh, that as a mode of transportation. Uh, there's also active transportation in places where, where that's viable. There's park and ride uh, in places where, where uh, people need to drive to get to the stations. And then there's public buses uh, that can be, the frequency can be increased uh, as well. So there's all sorts of different options that are, that are out there. Uh, and we have to start thinking about how we improve the transportation network, not just uh, individual transit mm-hmm. lines. And, and, you know, the second part about the, the, well, not the second part, there's lots of parts, but a second part of the COVID thing, we talked about the, you know, whether people will still be commuting. We've also seen in this city very clearly, uh, based on real estate prices, there has been a desire among many, it seems, to go back to the suburbs. I mean, there had been this move downtown, but now all of a sudden people want some space and want a backyard. And so, you know, the more you move out to the suburbs, again, the more transportation you need to connect everybody. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really yo-yoed. I think when we started, when the pandemic started, there was a, a big debate uh, in, in, in urbanist circles about whether anyone was ever going to live at high density or in apartment buildings anymore, if everyone was going to flee cities uh, for the suburbs and even uh, smaller communities further afield. It's turned out that that may have happened in at the initial phase of the pandemic, but more recently, uh, we're seeing with real estate prices and also with development that that people are still very much committed to the cities. They're committed to what it means to live in a city uh, in terms of proximity to work in terms of proximity to social and recreational uh, opportunities to having family uh, uh, close by. Uh, so so cities, you know, and developers are picking up on this uh, in, in Toronto and, and in other cities uh, across uh, the region. Uh, you're seeing a lot of developments starting in downtowns, often uh, very tall condo buildings or infill types of developments uh, starting to take place. So certainly the development community is betting that people are going to go back and and continue to live in cities. Uh, People are purchasing these units uh, as prices at least stay stable or or go up. So there's the market is also reflecting that people still are committed to cities. I think the key now is to make sure that our cities really work for everyone, that they're inclusive, that they have the green space that people need. I mean, green space was one of the real uh, important 
important hidden gems of the pandemic for people. It really was a differentiator uh, about how what your experience was like. If you could get out and at least go for walks in, in a place that was safe and had trees, uh, or if you were in a desolate heat island type of environment uh, where the public realm hadn't kept up. There was a big difference there. And so I think actually what you're seeing is a refocusing on, on good urbanism and on what it means to really not just uh, have density, but really also have diversity of uses and great design so that you're building places where people want to be. Yeah. And, and for the record, I wasn't suggesting that nobody wants to live in the downtown anymore. I don't mean that. It was just there, there has been, the, if you look at the prices in suburbs, they have gone berserk even more than in the downtown although as you say maybe that it, maybe we're just seeing the the beginning of the tail wagging to flip back the other way uh we got a minute or so left here just before we go the 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 theory or at least one of the other theories put forward by the author of this piece in bloomberg which we're basing our discussion on today is that t- transportation and transit is far better than tax breaks when it comes to luring companies and people to a city you agree with that I do. I think that investment in infrastructure is so important uh, in, in, in creating the types of communities that businesses will thrive in, that businesses succeed when people can get to their businesses and when they can move uh, their products around. And when you're tied up in gridlock, uh, that poses problems. Tax breaks uh, in many ways mean that we don't have the funding uh, to pay for this infrastructure, that, that the money is just simply uh, simply not there. Uh, and so I think insur- spending money on, on infrastructure, taxing appropriately, especially uh, for people who have wealth, uh, and using that money to invest in the quality infrastructure that benefits communities, attracts businesses, and enables uh, all citizens to thrive. I think that's really where we should be uh, putting our focus. See, and we did all this, we're, we're out of time, but we did all this in less than it would take to do a lecture and you did it fantastic. See, we, I, I, I gave you an open-ended question to start and we still managed to get it all in. See how good you are at this? Matty Sibiotechi, <laughs> Professor of University of Toronto. Really appreciate it. Great conversation. Thank you. Thanks. That was fun. Nice chatting with you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are a city right now that uh, that has a an issue. We have a number of issues, but one of them in particular that we want to talk about and that is, it seems that we're chasing young people away from the city and not doing it intentionally. That is, that's the real problem. If all of a sudden we had said, you know what, all you Gen Zs and millennials get lost. That's not what we're doing. We would love for them to come. We want them to be here, but it seems we're chasing them away. And if it's not the number one reason that this is happening, it's up there. It is the idea of housing. Not, not the idea, it is housing. The idea is prices of housing, availability of housing. It's not It's not ideal for young people who are getting their start right now and trying to build a life and, and moving here. If you, if you are in that position, if you're a young professional or someone who is working, not even professional necessarily, but has a job, can you afford to live in this city? Can you afford to buy a place in the city, which for many, for most maybe, is the dream. I want to bring in Michael Collins Williams. He's the CEO of the West End Home Builders Association. He joins us now. Thanks for doing this, Michael. Appreciate it. Good afternoon, Scott. Thank you for having me. So, I mean, as I hear this, it's kind of a depressing idea that we've got a situation now where we're not a city that we want young people, but it's a situation where we seem like we don't we don't have the capacity to to keep them. This is a challenge that's being experienced. Uh, not just in Hamilton, uh, but right across the entire uh, greater Golden Horseshoe. 
Um, growth is a, a good problem to have, um, but unfortunately, we're not building enough housing to keep up with the growth. Uh, so I thought I'd provide your your listeners with a little bit of context that um, please yes in the last decade, the first half of the last decade um, from 2010 to 2015, Ontario's population grew by about 600,000 people. The second half of the decade, from 2015 to 2020, that population increase spiked to a million people. That is a significant uh, increase in in the volume and pace of growth. That growth has actually been accelerating. And unfortunately, to respond to that increased growth, the amount of new housing built across Ontario essentially stayed static. It was the same uh, amount of new homes built the first half of the decade as the second half of the decade, despite the increase in, in population. So um, you can sort of guess as to what one of the immediate impacts of a growing population would have uh, if we're not building enough new housing. And uh, unfortunately, this problem doesn't seem like it's going to go away. The Greater Golden Horseshoes population is just over 10 million today. It's expected to grow to nearly 15 million uh, in the next 30 years by 2051. And those are very big numbers, but to put that in context, that's essentially equivalent to the entire population of Greater Montreal moving to this region. Uh, And Hamilton has certainly, uh, as one of the uh, larger municipalities in the region, uh, the effects are significant in Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton's expected to grow by 230,000 additional people over the next 30 years. And we've got to make sure that we're building enough housing to accommodate uh, this increase in population. Otherwise, the housing affordability issues that we have today, it's only going to get worse. Well, and look, there's there's a piece that the, the numbers just came out. And there's a piece at the spec.com right now. Donna Bacher, who's the president of the um, local real estate association, real estate association of Hamilton and Burlington, is saying that in house house home sales in the first six months of 2021 are up 57 percent year over year but we are way down in terms of of supply she says we have unprecedented demand but not enough houses on the market to keep up with it we've got a 33 percent decrease in people putting their houses up for sale so with what you're saying with all these numbers of added people coming into the area, and now we don't even have people necessarily selling their homes as fast, probably because they look at it and say, if I sell my house, I still have to buy somewhere else. I'm not pocketing all this money. So where am I going to go? I mean, you're, you're putting a lot of different pieces in place to say this, this is a problem. It is a problem. And uh, I think the, the imbalance between the demand of the growing population and the supply of either existing resale homes going onto the market or new homes being uh, built to uh, fill in and create new supply, um, there's an imbalance. And uh, the author of a recent uh, report from the Smart Prosperity Institute, Mike Moffat, has sort of described this as a bit of a musical chairs effect, um, where you have prices rising in the GTA and in Toronto, and families are leaving Toronto thanks to sort of a drive until you qualify effect. They're they're looking, especially <laughs> in this pandemic situation, um, more affordable options, perhaps with a little elbow room, perhaps with a backyard and a barbecue, uh, versus looking around a small apartment and realizing, hey, this is not going to work. And they're looking to places like Hamilton. Um, now, the incomes in Toronto are higher, and if they're selling their home in Toronto, they have more resources at their disposal and, you know, with this musical chairs effect, 
if there's not enough supply, you're ending up in bidding wars where you have multiple yes. people and families coming from Toronto, potentially with more resources, bidding up the cost of housing, and those individuals with the most resources, well, they win. And that is creating some displacement where Hamiltonians, uh, especially young people trying to start out, um, they're in a pretty difficult position when they're involved in these bidding wars um, with folks that may have some more resources at their disposal. And unfortunately, uh, the research is showing that young families are leaving Hamilton. And I'm sure many of your listeners um, have friends, family, or colleagues that, are, have, that have already left or are thinking of leaving. So the data is showing they're leaving. And I think, you know, anyone you talk to, they know somebody who's um, getting frustrated with the housing market. And, Absolutely. and to go Absolutely. Up. And we heard a very similar thing, and it was a really interesting one, because we've known about the Hamilton thing for a while now with people leaving Toronto. Uh, we heard uh, Cottage Country last year, when people realized that they could work from home or work on the internet, there were a lot of Toronto people and people who had, you know, other expensive homes in Southern Ontario say, well, wait a second, I, I'm in a one and a half million dollar home. I can buy a cottage for 500000 and work from there and have the cottage. Well, what they ended up saying was cottage prices went up by something like 70% or something, some crazy number last year because all the, the bidding wars of all the people deciding, hey, I'll go up there. And, and I mean, it's happening everywhere that there is a desire to move to and to afford. And, and, and so we're seeing it here still. Where are they going, though? I mean, when you say they drive till they qualify, what does that mean now? sort of go back to that musical chairs effect where you have folks from uh, the higher costs and higher density jurisdictions like Toronto, Peel, or York, and, and they're sort of looking at the, the next set of areas outwards, uh, which in our case is Hamilton. And then there's the displacement in Hamilton. And the recent research published by the Smart Prosperity Institute showed that about 15,000 families left Hamilton over the past uh, five years, and they specifically went down the uh, QEW to sort of the St. Catharines, Niagara area, or up the 403 to uh, Brantford, uh, Woodstock, and beyond. So it's it's this cascading effect of people moving further, and uh, then that draws the question, well, what's happening to the folks in Brantford and Woodstock as mm. people are moving out from Hamilton there? And it's it is a cascading effect that is unfortunately impacting many markets across Ontario. And, and the bottom line is that there are more people coming in than there are homes being built. Um, and, and that is causing this spike in pricing. So let's, let's go to that point because we're talking about the shortage of places and, and the city right now here in Hamilton is surveying residents to ask if they're in favor of expanding the urban zone to build more houses further and further out into green space or to put real strong limits on that and requiring that it to be building upwards in the urban core. You've just touched on the fact that a, a number, I, won't, I don't know, a lot, maybe a number of people have decided they would like that piece of backyard and the barbecue and all the rest in the suburbs. But how do you balance that? I mean, it's either you either have to stretch into the green area that uh, people balk at. Or you say, yeah, well, I'm sorry, you just can't have that life that you want to have with the outdoor. I think we right? Or is there a third approach. option? Um, I, 
I think the option really is a balanced approach of a little bit of both. Uh, given the housing crisis and what we're doing to young people, uh, I think that we do need to uh, strike a balance and provide policies that support intensification. Some people want to have that downtown lifestyle uh, where they're living in lofts, condos, or apartments close to uh, restaurants and, and transit. And other people are looking for a little more elbow room. They're looking for space, backyard, perhaps uh, some more space for their kids. And uh, we should be providing more options, not less options. And, and my concern with the um, options presented uh, through this survey is that uh, the city of Hamilton in the middle of a housing crisis is looking at less options. And people are voting with their feet. If Hamilton chooses not to have a small urban boundary expansion uh, to provide more housing for the next 30 years, um, it, it, it's not like those people are, are not going to suddenly be looking for a townhouse or a single family home. They'll leave and they'll go to St. Catharines. They'll go to Woodstock or Brantford or even further, and they'll look for those options there. And that raises the questions on, is that environmentally more sustainable when they're going to be commuting vast distances on the highways in their cars to get to their job in Hamilton or back towards Toronto? Um, so, you know, I, I really do think we need a balanced approach. The other issue here is that these are long-term impacts on young families. They're having less disposable income because of their higher monthly housing costs. Uh, to save up for larger down payments if we don't have enough housing supply. Um, you've got young people that are staying put in their parents' basements. They're delaying moving out. Perhaps they're delaying getting married. Perhaps they're delaying having kids. Um, so there's a real cascading effect on what we are doing to the next generation uh, that previous generations didn't have to deal with in terms of the cost of housing. Uh, and I think some of the anxiety and, and the societal impacts of, uh, of young people not having opportunities. Let me play devil's advocate for one second here. You've talked about how the fact is that in the next 50 years or so, we're going to have another 230,000 folks in this city. Do we want that? And I don't mean that as an elitist thing. I mean, the, the, the cost to develop the land and do all the buildings and the, the, the services and everything else, uh, the fact that there's not the available space, might that deter people? And could we somehow see that, you know, if we grow only by 100,000 or 150, can that somehow be seen as a good thing? Or is it always going to be a bad thing not to be growing as fast as other places? That's a great question. Uh, we do have an aging society with uh, baby boomers moving on into retirement. Uh, so the Canadian government has uh, made choices that we need to continue bringing new immigrants uh, into the country to supply our labor force um, and to help pay for things like healthcare, education, and, and whatnot. It's important to have tax-paying citizens uh, within that labor pool versus uh, some other countries like Japan that are having tremendous difficulties where one-third of their population is over 65, and they're one of the most indebted nations in the world. Also, as we're coming out of this pandemic, uh, the federal government has looked towards immigration and actually increasing immigration targets to about 400,000 per year as one of the best methods to um, to drive economic growth and rebuild our economy. Uh, so we know that the people are coming. Um, it's a fair question you asked as to whether that is 
the best choice. Uh, but the fact of the matter is they are coming and we do need to plan for it. And if we do not properly plan for population that is coming, will you wind up exactly where we are today, where there are more people, there are homes being built, and the cost of housing goes up. And um, we're, we're in a tough situation in which there are no silver bullets. There are no mm. perfect solutions. Um, there is a balancing act and compromises that need to be made in terms of how we plan for and accommodate a very significant amount of growth, not just coming to Hamilton, but this entire broader region. For sure. And my question, and you know what, my question wasn't even really about immigration. It was, do we, is it, do, do we want them to be in the country? Do we want to keep immigration coming, but not have everybody necessarily come and gravitate to the cities, but find other places and grow those areas? That That's, that's another question, I suppose. The, you mentioned though, the aging population, it's a, this is another one that it's, it's an awkward way to ask this question. I understand, but with that aging population, um, I don't want to break any news to anybody, but everybody eventually dies. And uh, at some point that aging population are going to pass along. And those houses you would think that they're living in are going to become available or going to go on the market. Does that, as the baby boomer generation moves along, does that help at all? And, and help? I mean, I know, I understand that that sounds like a horrible way to say it, but does that, does that ease the strain on the situation is a better way to say it. It may ease the strain. Uh, but with the population growing at the pace it does, uh, it is, um, yes, it, it'll be helpful as uh, those homes are, are freed up and, and made available as part of the new housing supply. Um, obviously, a lot of those old homes will, will need some work to bring them up to, uh, to current standards. Um, but yes, there will be some easing in time. Although we are finding uh, that senior citizens are looking to age in place and stay in their homes uh, longer than previous generations. Uh, People are living longer. So, you know, it's not going to be one or two years where suddenly there's a flood of new housing. And I think it'll be a trickle as it comes onto the market, but every little bit does help. We have a few seconds left here, but what would be the number to, to, in order, I haven't done the math in order to accommodate this surge in numbers that we're expecting, how many new homes, whether that's condo units or single family homes, how many are we going to have to start building every year to be able to start dealing with this? Recent research, again, by the Smart Prosperity Institute and uh, Mike Moffitt, uh, just released a couple of days ago, uh, looked at the last 20 years in terms of household formation in Ontario uh, versus the number of new units being built. Theoretically, every household that's formed needs a place to live, whether it's a condo, apartment, single-family home. And he found for previous decades that they were more or less aligned, sometimes slightly off. But the last five years, there was a gap of 25,000 units per year um, in terms of a shortage. That adds 25,000? Hamilton. Wow. This is across southern Ontario that we okay. built 100,000 fewer units in the last five years than what should have been built if we were merely just keeping pace with population growth. And it's interesting because if you look at the last five years, that's exactly when housing prices started to spike. There's been a big spike in the last year through the pandemic, but it was around 2016, 2017 that um, housing prices in the broader regions seemed to start becoming a little 
dislodged from regular economic growth and really started to skyrocket. And um, that is the housing that makes crisis sense. that we find ourselves in today. That makes absolute sense. I mean, I, I don't know if that's the only reason, but boy, that makes sense. I wish we had more time to talk about this, Michael, but uh, we are out of time. Michael Collins-Williams, the Chief Executive Officer of the West End Home Builders Association. Thanks so much for taking some time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it, the opportunity. Scott Thompson Show here on 900 CHML. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today as we drive this well, I don't know. Is drive this, drive this car. We'll drive this car home. I was going to drive this puppy home, but that's drive this car home for for the end of a hump day show. Uh, but I I came across this. Uh, it's a really interesting organization uh, that I became aware of, and, and I wanted to bring the CEO on for a few minutes. It's it's an organization that is trying to open doors to black youth to be able to get engaged in the tech sector. And you know what? There may be others that are doing similar things because to me, that's not even what's the most interesting part of this group. Let me bring in Randy Osei, who's the founder and as his CEO of the Athlete Tech Group. Randy, how are you today? Doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on. As I say, there, there's some interesting things here. And number one, if people were listening to the name of your organization that I just said, um, you're called the Athlete Tech Group. What is the connection between athletes and tech? <laughs> That's such a great question. Uh, to give you some additional context, um, I'm a former brand and business manager for uh, quite a bit of NBA players that came out of Canada uh, between the years of 2012 and 2019. And my role um, allowed me to work with athletes to build their life off of the court. Uh, so, you know, their camps, launching foundations, investments, endorsements, partnerships, et cetera, et cetera. And as time has gone on, we've seen athletes getting more and more into technology. I know 2019 was a huge year. A lot of professional athletes were a part of IPOs. Uh, tech is the, is the way of the future, if you will. And, you know, athletes being, you know, some of the most influential people on earth, um, are seeing that the, the leverage that they have and are now entering into tech. So, uh, athlete tech really, you know, the brand, the vision started back in 2019 when we hosted Canada's first ever athlete technology summit. Okay. So I don't mean, I mean, ask a stupid question and maybe it is a stupid mm-hmm. question, but when you talk about tech, um, is that the, the grand sphere of anything to do with tech or are you more referring to the idea of the social media and the, the things technology that would be a, a, a very obvious natural fit for athletes? Yeah. So for athletes, uh, when it comes to athletes and tech, it's more so the investor side, right? So joining okay. cap table, joining as an advisor, uh, helping with business development. One thing that we're seeing is, you know, as athletes retire and, you know, their, their careers are about on average three and a half years, they're looking for jobs. They're looking for things to do after sport. And uh, some athletes are angel investors early in their career and end up working at some of the companies they work uh, they invested in, or, you know, some of these companies get acquired, IPO, uh, whatever the case may be, but it, it does provide a career development opportunity for athletes outside of sport. Is there something about athlete, about athletics that lends itself to a career in tech? Is there a natural flow from one to the other because parts of what you do as an athlete are perfect for that world? hundred percent. I think uh, it's even beyond, you know, tech, it's athletes and, and business, athletes and entrepreneurship. 
uh, athletes have a lot of transferable skills that allows them to be more than just athletes, right? They're some of the most focused people on earth. Their time management, you know, has to be impeccable or they get fined. Um, they're able to, <laughs> you know, they're disciplined, working in team environments. Um, they love competition. So they love to win. And, you know, as employers are, are moving and, and seeing this, it's, it's a great addition to any team or any company's culture. That that you just said the part there that uh, like so many athletes finish their career and then we hear that oh they've they've joined on they're a businessman now or an investor or whatever like th- this happens and it's always one of those things going I didn't know they did that but I I think you just hit it the fact that athletes are so competitive and love to win I think a lot of businesses would just say well as lo- I can teach that person how to do this job I can't necessarily teach someone how to want to win that badly hundred and fifty million percent. It's it's that drive to be the best. And it's the same thing in business. We, we we get in and we have competitors and we're trying to capture market share. So, you know, what's gonna make us different? So how so what do you do then? Like how does this work that you are you looking to introduce athletes to openings in jobs? Are you looking to train them for this kind of thing? What what is the role of athlete tech group to get the athlete into that world? Absolutely. Um, So that's a great question. So what we've been doing uh, since launching last year, July, we're actually about to be one year, one years old in two weeks. Um, We have been facilitating uh, workshops for athletes. We've been running education classes via Zoom due to COVID. We've been hosting virtual events for athletes to build their network within tech. So meeting fund managers, meeting founders, meeting entrepreneurs, uh, you know, meeting other angels as well. We've also been hosting um, our, we have our upcoming Athlete Tech Summit in September, which will also be virtual. So really helping athletes build when they have the time to do so outside of sport through events, uh, storytelling, social media. Our social media is a big conduit for what we do. Uh, a lot of our social media is educational. So we'll take a deep dive into an industry and explore why you know, the creator's boom is upon us and why Clubhouse grew and died so quickly or how Amazon makes money, how Robinhood makes money. Uh, Things that we use, we break it down into simple terms for athletes to understand and gravitate towards. There's got to be a, 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 a balance in here. And the balance is if you as an athlete, as a pro athlete, have made so much money, you've probably got people doing this stuff for you. You don't have to do this kind of thing. So mm-hmm. we're probably talking about people who are not the, you know, the LeBron James of the world, certainly who would be into this kind of thing. But you also want people, I'm assuming, who have been successful already, who have shown the capacity to do this. I, I'm sure there's a sweet spot in there somewhere between the two extremes. You know what? To be honest, every the biggest thing is every athlete will have to transition out of sport at some point. Right. Whether you're a high school athlete, college athlete, professional athlete, that transition is going to come at 25, at 20, 30, 35, 40. It's going to come. And one thing that, you know, I've seen in the industry is, yes, you have a lot of money to pay these people. But once you stop playing, you're not making the same amount of money. Right. So one percent of your salary when you're not playing is a big chunk. Two percent of your salary is a big chunk. Um not everyone wants to pay these fees and we we see you know what we offer is do-it-yourself education because you have the skills and the tools to do so and we're, we're really looking to 
provide athletes with the knowledge, the network, the resources, um, and open doors for them uh, because there's people that really want to work with athletes but don't have uh, a pathway to do so. And that's where Athlete Tech Group comes in. So what you're saying is not everybody is Michael Jordan and makes more after his career than during? <laughs> nope, not everyone. Mike, Mike will be one. LeBron will definitely be one. Steph Curry will be one. Uh, a couple of athletes will be one, but the majority won't, right? So um, that transition is a killer. They say, one, one thing I read, Scott, uh, the transition out of sports, people have um, compared it to coming back from the army and, and coming back into regular life. So, you know, when you yeah. contrast. Yeah. And, and I've heard so many there. times. Yeah. And Randy, I've heard so many times the, the stories of athletes who are aimless after they're done because now their their career that they've spent their whole life on is gone. Now, what do I do? And there's this giant void. And, you know, it, it causes problems for some people. I mean, there are, there are endless stories of, of, of athletes that get into drugs or alcohol because they're just, they have nothing else to do. They're, they're, their life just doesn't seem to have a lot of meaning because the thing that made them so good and famous and special is now gone. You got to find something. Absolutely. Absolutely. You hit it right on the head. So here at the Athlete Tech Group, we're actually developing an app that allows athletes to uh, learn on their own time and grow on their own time and really putting the ownership back in their own hands. So uh, can't say too much, but uh, like you said, be- because you've spent so much time and you've got to focus during the season on your season, um, you don't have time for anything else. One, one athlete we spoke to was Theo Fleury. Theo Fleury, Canadian mm-hmm. legend. Yep. He's done his thing here in, in, in hockey. I had a conversation with Theo. And I said, Theo, why, why haven't, you know, when you were playing, why didn't she's like, Randy, I was trying to be the best hockey player in the world. You think I'm going to pick up a book when I've got to <laughs> go up against Matt Sundin and, and the Leafs or any of these other uh, athletes. And I was like, it makes sense. It makes sense. So read, uh, go, go check out Randy's website. It's uh, athlete, athlete Just like it sounds. Uh, it's a fascinating idea. It's a fascinating concept and it's good that uh, there are people out there helping athletes as they, uh, as they do wrap up their career. Cause it is, it, there is a void there. Uh, Randy really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate you having me have yourself a great one. You as well. The Scott Thompson show weekdays from noon to three on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.